ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com NBCM. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Douglas Jonas, head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange, who is currently the listing home for about 75% of ETF assets, over 2,000 ETFs in all. And I've said this in the past, Douglas is truly in a uh, unique position because he has a front-row seat to everything going on within the industry. And not only that, he's a uh, tremendous ETF ambassador. If you ever see the uh, ETF issuer bell ringings at the New York Stock Exchange, you'll see Douglas up on the podium, and uh, you can just feel his passion. He clearly loves the space. And so I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, we're going to discuss everything from active ETFs to Dimensional's proposed ETF share class structure, I want to ask him about the potential Coinbase surveillance sharing agreements that exchanges would uh, enter into on these spot Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, we'll also get into ETF education and the uh, ETF Institute. We're going to cover a lot of ground. So, again, really looking forward to that. Also joining me will be David Schulhoff, founder and CEO of MUSQ, who back in July, they launched the MUSQ Global Music Industry ETF. The ticker symbol is appropriately MUSQ. And this, of course, invests in companies involved in areas such as music streaming, uh, music content and dis uh, distribution, live music events and ticketing, among other things. 
And as you might guess, David is a uh, longtime music industry veteran. Some 25 years is both a music industry executive and investor. And I'll tell you, as a uh, music fan myself, obviously a 90s alternative music fan, I'm very interested in finding out what David's uh, seen in the music industry right now and where it might be heading. So that should be a fun conversation. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Vetify. And most of you should already know what one of our topics will be. Yes, we will be covering all of these Ethereum futures ETF filings over the past week. I believe there are now 14 filings in total. There's been a flurry of activity. So we'll get into that. And then we'll also discuss a sector that... I think some might find surprising in terms of its performance this year, and that's consumer discretionary. I I think a lot of people thought we were headed for a recession and consumer spending was going to fall off a cliff, and maybe that'll still happen. But you wouldn't know that by looking at the performance from the consumer discretionary sector this year. So Roxanne is going to explain what's been going on here, and uh, we'll also highlight a few ETFs in this space. So uh, let's actually do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. An area that I've been talking a lot about is Bitcoin versus gold. So right now in the environment that we're in, um, a lot of investors are concerned over those rising rates. Roxana, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So, all right, we are going to start with this wave of uh, Ethereum futures ETF filing. So this began with volatility shares, I would say, sort of quietly filing, uh, what was that, on Friday, July 28th. And once that was out there, we saw a bunch of other issuers jump in. As I mentioned, I believe there are now 13 additional ETFs filed from nine different (laughs) issuers. Uh, There are straightforward Ether futures ETFs. Uh, There are combined Ether and Bitcoin futures ETFs. There are short Ether futures ETFs. But I want to start by reading you something from uh, Vicky Guang with the Wall Street Journal. So she said last week, quote, the rush of filings for futures-based Ether ETFs came after the SEC staff told asset managers they are ready to review such filings. And I think that's interesting because there was another wave of uh, Ether Futures ETFs back in May, but reportedly the SEC uh, asked issuers to withdraw those filings at, at that time. So to start, look, you and I are obviously just speculating here, but do you have any thoughts on what might have changed with the uh, SEC? Yeah, so it's, I don't know, I think it's kind of weird, like you said, because earlier this year in May, um, they were not really supportive, and that was only three months ago. And then now suddenly they're ready to consider these products, which, you know, doesn't really guarantee they'll approve anything, just that they'll consider it. Um, So it's sort of puzzling to me, but, you know, I think there's a lot going on here with these new crypto filings. Um, Maybe they're starting to reevaluate their priorities. So we know they prefer futures over spot. So it would seem counterintuitive that they wouldn't approve the um, Ether futures filing. But I guess you could also argue that maybe they're less likely to approve something that isn't a Bitcoin product, um, even though I don't believe there's like a classification difference with Ether that could lead to rejection. So I think it's more likely than not that 
they could approve these, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it went the other way and they didn't approve them because I think it's just really hard to understand what the SEC is thinking right now. Um, there doesn't really seem to be any clear policies regarding crypto outlines. Well, and maybe that actually answers a follow-up question that I, I have for you, which is whether there's anything to read into here as it pertains to spot Bitcoin ETF approval. Like, if the SEC is saying they're now open to reviewing Ether Futures ETFs, I would say clearly uh, that's a shift in posture, and I'm not sure that they would do that unless there was a real path towards approval for these Ether Futures ETFs because, again, they they made issuers withdraw these back in May. So there, there's clearly some sort of shift, but is that a good sign for spot Bitcoin ETFs in, in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I don't think it'll affect it immediately. And what I mean by that is I don't think it's going to be like a simple relationship. Like if they approve these Ether futures, then they'll also approve the spot Bitcoin. I'm not sure it'll be that simple. I think it's more of like this rolling snowball of approvals. I mean, if you look back um, a couple of years ago, first we had the, the Bitcoin futures ETF, then we had the inverse Bitcoin futures ETF, then it was leveraged Bitcoin futures. And now we're looking at potentially the Ether futures or a combined Ether Bitcoin futures ETF. So it's like this progressive chain of events that's happening where certain products keep getting approved. And eventually, I just don't think there's going to be any excuses left for denying spot Bitcoin ETF. You're speaking my language. Uh, let me let me ask you this. In terms of the potential demand for Ethereum futures ETFs, if you look at uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs right now, so the first one, BitO, the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, that, of course, launched in October 2021. It's by far the largest. So it has about 1.1 of the little over 1.3 billion in Bitcoin futures ETF assets. The second largest is the ProShares inverse version of that with uh, 73 million. And then no other Bitcoin futures related ETF has more than 50 million in assets, and I count seven of those in, in total. I guess my point is that hasn't really uh, been a huge market overall with, with Bitcoin futures ETFs. And I would say Ethereum futures ETFs would theoretically be uh, a smaller market if you just compare Bitcoin and Ethereum's market cap, right? Bitcoin has a much larger market cap than Ethereum. So I would assume, and maybe this is poor logic, but I would assume Bitcoin futures ETFs would have more interest than Ethereum futures uh, ETFs based on that. I guess I just don't see any way that there's room for all of these uh, Ether uh, futures ETFs that have been filed. So I, I'm just curious, what type of demand do you think we could see or if the SEC does get comfortable? comfortable? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think there will be some interest. Um, it's not going to be like when Bitso was launched. Um, you know, if you just look at the current crypto environment, uh, overall, I think a lot of retail investors in particular, they've just been disenchanted by anything crypto related after last year. And I mean, we've seen this with not just the uh, futures Bitcoin ETF, but the thematic uh, crypto ETFs. You know, these were top performers um, this year and there's still, you know, not much flows going into them. So I think that there's still a few people interested in, in these in these products, but it's the interest is going to be more on the spot products rather than the future products. Um, you know, and I also think not all ETFs are created and expected to attract significant demand. I mean, some are just created to fill a space in the market. And I think issuers are taking this as an opportunity to file since they don't want to be left behind. So you'd assume like with 
Bitto, there's going to be a lot of market share that would go to the first mover, which in this case is volatility shares. Um, but, you know, at this point, there's also a lot of issuers that have a dedicated following in crypto. So I wouldn't be surprised if market share becomes more spread out than it would be with these Bitcoin future ETFs. But, you know, I, I definitely don't think it's as big of a market as, as you would see with, with Bitcoin and with Bitto. No, I agree with all of that. And actually, I think the best path to success here is a uh, combined Bitcoin and Ethereum futures ETF. I, I think that's the best path to succeed right now. And actually, Valkyrie is just trying to update their existing Bitcoin futures ETF to allow it to hold Ethereum futures, uh, which, based on what I've seen, would put it at the front of the line. And I, I think that's a wise move. The other thing that I'll mention here, and then we can move on, and I tweeted this out, but when I think about the overall demand for Ethereum futures ETFs and what this might look like moving forward, I think something else to consider is that if Grayscale wins their lawsuit against the SEC, and let's say the combination of that outcome, and then, of course, these uh, Coinbase surveillance sharing agreements, let's say that that leads the SEC to allow spot Bitcoin ETFs. And then add to that, I, I do think there's a, a, a pretty good chance the SEC allows these Ether futures ETFs, just because, again, why else would they tell issuers they're ready to review applications, right? Um, so what, where I'm heading is if, if those three things happen, then guess what? That should mean spot Ethereum ETFs would also be allowed by the SEC as well, because there would be no reason to, to not allow a spot Ethereum ETF if you have spot Bitcoin ETFs and Ethereum futures ETFs, especially combined with the, uh, the, the Grayscale lawsuit, assuming that that's a favorable outcome for, for Grayscale. So if all of that happens, if, if you think about this, then there's really no reason for Ethereum futures ETFs longer term. And probably Bitcoin futures ETFs as well, right? Investors will all just use the spot products, which is ultimately what they want. I, I just think that's something to consider. And I, I get that there's a lot of ifs in what I just uh, rolled out there. I don't know if you have any quick thoughts on that. I just think the, the spot Bitcoin and spot Ethereum products, and, and really, you know, as we look longer term, spot crypto products as a whole are ultimately what investors want. Yeah, no, totally agree. And we've seen that happen in other countries like Canada, for instance, where they do have the spot Bitcoin ETFs. We do see um, market share there rather than the futures, which not many people use. Yeah, and, and we can look uh, right now to the gold ETF market, right? You, you have some $100 billion plus in assets and physical gold ETFs. There's hardly anything in gold futures ETFs. I think that's indicative of what we would see with, uh, with crypto ETFs. Um, okay, let's move on and talk consumer discretionary ETFs. And you may recall, actually, the last time that you were uh, on here, we looked at communication services and technology, and those are still the top two performing sectors this year. But consumer discretionary isn't far behind. It's actually third. And, and so I pulled the, the data this morning. If you look at the sector spider ETFs, so XLC, communication services, that's up 43% year-to-date. XLK, so technology, that's second at 39%. But then you look at XLY, consumer discretionary, that's right there at 35%. And as I alluded to at the top, I think that might surprise some people just given that uh, many companies have, have guided lower in terms of consumer demand and consumer spending. And, well, things do look a little better here at the moment, and there, I think, a lot more optimism around a soft landing by the Fed. I still think the prevailing sentiment out there is there will be some slowing 
uh, of the economy. And so I'd love to hear from you what has been driving uh, this resilience in the consumer discretionary sector. Yeah, so I, I think there's there's a couple of different things going on here. I think, first of all, you're having like this sort of over hyperfixation on tech or internet related stocks. Um, you know, we hear so much about AI lately and about semiconductors and some of these large cap stocks like like Alphabet and Meta and Netflix. Um, so there's a lot of focus on the tech and communication sectors, and we sort of see like you said the communi- uh, the sorry the consumer discretionary sector just sort of like creep in there right behind. And, you know, if you look at the fourth best performing sector, that's industrials, which is only up like 12 percent. So, you know, these three are are far ahead of, of, you know, everything else. Um, And when you look closely at at consumer discretionary stocks, I think it's it's kind of counterintuitive because, you know, like you said, there's been a lot of signs of, of consumer spending weakening. And I think it's more evident specifically on the consumer goods side. You know, we've heard this earnings season from a lot of well known companies about a weaker second half and consumers becoming more selective with their purchases. Um, but, you know, first of all, I think a lot of this has already been priced in a few quarters ago. I mean, we knew that consumer spending wasn't going to carry us forever. And companies have sort of been talking about softer outlooks um, in 2023, specifically the second half, for a long time now. Um, so it's not really unexpected that we're going to see a slowdown. Um, so I think, you know, this earnings season, when we see a lot of companies start reporting these slowdowns, it's not really unexpected. People are more focused on sort of the outlooks that they're reporting for beyond 2023. Um, and then, you know, I also want to point out that consumer spending doesn't just revolve around good spending. Um, if you look at PCE data, there's a lot of spending shifts into services now, particularly into um, restaurants and travel and a lot of these entertainment and leisure-based sectors. So there's also this disconnect between services spending now versus where it was pre-pandemic. So to me, that means there's possibly room for services to continue growing. Um, And if you look at all of this logically, I think it makes sense. So the pandemic only started happening three years ago. And in that time, consumers bought a lot of stuff. And they probably have a lot of this stuff. I know that I do. So if they're going to cut back on spending, it'll probably be on these goods that they have um, so much of it in their homes, especially since you know, a lot of people may be expected to buy a house or move into a bigger house, but they're stuck in a smaller space or apartment because of the current housing market. So it makes sense that if, if consumers are spending, they would probably shift some of that spending into services and experiences. And then if you look at some of the top performers in XLY, this is sort of the story that you see. It's a lot of travel stocks. And what's surprising are actually the cruise lines. So two of the three um, cruise lines are the highest performers in this ETF year to date. And that's sort of a combination of that consumer demand for travel returning, but also the fact that some of these stocks were beaten down badly for a couple of years. So they're going to see a much stronger recovery this year. And then, and then my last point in this I just sort of wanted to make is that the consumer discretionary sector, it's not really immune, immune to tech and innovation. So it's still a big driver like it is with the tech and communication sectors, for instance. So if you look at XLY, um, it's market cap weighted. So the largest holdings are Amazon and Tesla. So Amazon has about 25% and Tesla's about 18%. So together, that's like 43% of the ETF, which is almost half. And both of these are very much focused on innovation and have been doing pretty well so far this year. So that's driving a lot of growth in the sector. So if you look at Amazon, that's up you know, about 70% year-to-date, and that's a big online retail giant, obviously, but there's a lot of growth this year in their cloud and advertising businesses. 
Um, same with Tesla. You know, they've had some ups and downs, but overall they're up about 105% year to date. So that's contributed a lot to this segment. Yeah, that's a great point on Amazon and, and Tesla because I think some people just maybe who aren't close to it, you look at those companies and you think more tech-related companies, right, than being in the consumer discretionary sector. And I, I guess that actually brings up a good question. I mean, with, with XOY, as you pointed out, again, the consumer discretionary select sector spider ETF, that is the uh, the most popular ETF out there. But to what you were saying, if you look at the holdings, what 43% of that ETF is Amazon and Tesla. Now, clearly that's served this ETF well, and we've seen that just in the broader markets, right? Top-heavy S&P 500 index, for example, uh, you know, that's been good, that it's been market cap-weighted, and you've had this this dominant performance from the biggest you know, mega-cap tech companies out there. But for people who are maybe concerned about that, are there any other ETFs you might point to uh, that cover the, dis- the consumer discretionary space besides XLY if, if people are interested in, uh, in playing this space? Yeah, so there's there's alternatively weighted ETFs like um, RSPD, which is equal weighted, or FXD, which is uh, weighted by growth factors. So RSPD, um, you know, that's in the uh, Investo equal weight sector suite. So that's actually the second highest performing um, sector ETF in that suite after tech. So still doing well even without that overweight to Amazon and Tesla. And, you know, same with FXD um, in, in the First Trust Alphadex sector suite. That's actually the third highest performing sector after tech and industrial. So whichever way you look at it, you sort of have the same few sectors outperforming, um, including consumer discretionary, even without that overweight to Amazon and Tesla. So that's why I think it's, it's an interesting sector. It's obviously very diverse, but a lot of the uh, service, leisure, and entertainment segments, I think, are well positioned for this year, even with that slowdown in uh, consumer spending. And I think consumer goods has actually held on longer than I thought as well. So, you know, I still see this as one of the stronger sectors uh, through the end of the year. Well, Roxanne, a great conversation this week. I love getting a little more granular with uh, with sectors. Uh, you know, I think sometimes I stay higher level. It's always fun to, to dig a little bit deeper. Always enjoy connecting. Thank you for uh, for joining me. Yeah, thank you. That was Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Vetify. The future is fast approaching, and artificial intelligence is positioned to fundamentally change not only society, but financial advisory. Join us on August 30th for Vetify's AI Symposium, where experts and thought leaders dig into AI and explore its potential impact. Go to etftrends.com slash webcasts slash artificial dash intelligence dash symposium dot com to learn more and register for the event. is Douglas Jonas, head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange, who, as I noted at the top, they currently list 75% of all exchange-traded product assets, over 2,000 ETFs in all. 
And Douglas himself is a true ETF ambassador and also somebody who obviously has a front row seat to everything occurring within the industry. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Douglas, always uh, great to connect. Welcome back to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm just excited to be here. Longtime uh, fan, longtime listener, so it's great to be on. Is there anything at all going on in the world of ETFs this year? Just a, another <laughs> ho-hum year for the industry. Oh, yeah. Regular old year of uh, explosive growth and, and unbelievable uh, opportunities. So, you know, it's been exciting. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the things we're, we're excited about this week, Nate, is we actually crossed 2,000 ETFs listed at the New York Stock Exchange for the first time ever in history. So, pretty exciting little milestone of, of kind of historic nature I'm able to share with you, with you and the listeners this morning, which we're really proud about. All right. So I was looking back. It's actually been a couple of years since you last joined me, which I'm not sure how I let that happen. Uh, but back at that time, uh, look, you were very bullish on active ETFs. I would say before that was really popular. It seemed like at that time it was really just a lot of talk around ARK and, and Kathy Wood. But you look now there's more momentum than ever around active management in an ETF wrapper. Look, you've been proven right on your uh, your bullishness. And so I'm curious moving forward, uh, are you expecting this to continue? Like, like, are we just at the beginning of this trend here? You know, uh, you're, you're right. I was, and I, I, in fact, I still am. I probably am more bullish, believe it or not, now than I, than I was then. I, I, years ago, I was at a conference, and I was one of the keynote speakers was this futurist, and I won't spend time on that, but one of the, the statements he had shown time and time again on charts was, us as humans tend not to notice geometric growth rates and great great rates of return when they're happening at a small level and it's only until they actually start to slow down that they're at a massive level we actually pay attention and that always sort of caught my eye the nerd in me and so I love scanning my team here we scan for these sort of massive cager numbers and and that's always a really neat way to be at the forefront of what's going to happen and the reality is that that's the active ETF market it's been like that for you know since they started uh, and it hasn't slowed down. You know, the five-year cager right now, just on assets alone, is 49% in active ETFs. And for the last three years, uh, active ETFs have dominated total launches. That's happening again this year. Way more active ETFs are launching than ever. But it's it's beyond just sort of launch. It's also success. You know, the last time I pulled the stats, something like 70% plus of actively managed ETFs were all cash flow positive this year. And, and yes, at mid-year, the, the year, you know, feels like it's been a better year, but for the majority of this year, it has not been a great uh, market for both equity and fixed income, yet those ETFs are continuing to garner cash flow. So we, we still are very bullish on active ETFs. We continue to, to see active managers coming into the scene. And by the way, you know, a lot of stats are out there. If people are nerdy like me, they want to read more, they can sign up at homeofetfs.com. We have an active ETF newsletter. It comes out fortnightly. It's free. You can track the industry right along with me and my team. When I think about the momentum around active right now, I know one of the things we've talked about in the past is mutual fund to ETF conversions. And I know you're well aware that uh, somebody like Dimensional is Exhibit A here, right? Some $40 billion in conversions. And not only that, they recently filed for ETF share class exemptive relief, which I do want to talk specifically about that in a moment. But how important are these additional uh, channels, so to speak, for active managers in bringing their strategies to the uh, ETF wrapper? 
Yeah, you bring up conversions, and conversions are, are interesting in the fact that it only took a couple of years for us to forget that five years ago that was like the holy grail for ETF growth. Uh, and so, you know, Guinness Atkinson paved the way. They, they did the very first conversion just a couple of years ago. And we fast forward, you know, it's literally been like two, two and a half years, $60 billion have converted directly from mutual funds to ETFs. The, the, it's super important in my mind for a couple of reasons. One, if you're an active manager or you're just an index manager, but you, you've been struggling, how do I break into this ETF game with a strategy that is already consistent, it's got a track record, it's time-tested, and I'm, and I'm nervous about how to deal with the downstream distribution problem of platforms and some of the other pieces that I know we won't have time today to get into. But the, the conversion solves for a lot of pieces. You bring with you your track record, you bring with you your assets, and, and you're, you're up and running and, and can potentially be a top 10 manager in the ETF space almost overnight. And so the, the growth rate of conversions, I can tell you going forward, the pipeline is bigger than backwards. And ba- you know, backwards, as I mentioned, was $60 billion. So we expect that growth to continue and actually increase over the next couple of years. Uh, the the, the there's a, I mentioned a lot of things in there, right? And a lot of what my time, sp- my time is spent, my team's time is spent, is really consulting asset managers. The, the asset managers that are, that are thinking about the ETF space, they're thinking about joining it, they're seeing the growth, and they're saying, how do I do that best? Do I do it with a new filing? Do I come in standalone? Uh, do I use a white-label platform? Do I convert my current assets? Do I clone a strategy? These are big decisions, and these are the types of things we're working on every day with a lot of the asset managers in the industry. What about that ETF share class exemptive relief I mentioned? And I actually visited with uh, Dimensionals Gerard O'Reilly last week. He, he was outstanding. He did a great job of explaining everything here. But I'm curious as to how important you think this could be and whether you think the SEC is actually going to get comfortable with this. Yeah, I, I actually think this could be one of the more keynote game-changing issues that could come across the ETF industry and could actually – uh, even though here I am bullish and talking about the growth rate and the acceleration, I actually think that uh, if if the first, you know, Perpetual is the first one to, to file, as you said, Dimensional. I know there's some others we're working on. They're filing now, so I would expect to see a few more asset managers. I do think that ultimately if the SEC approves the multi-share class structure, which – you know, is very is very likely, right? None of us can ever read the regulator, but the reality is Vanguard's been running that structure successfully for many, many years. Uh, as you know, in my history, I spent a long time at Vanguard, uh, and and that structure is operated efficiently and successfully across the rest of the world. So it's not as if this is new and novel. The idea of a multi-share class structure. Ultimately, if, the, if that first filing goes through, and and the preceding filing should should then happen as well. I do think it's game-changing for the ETF industry. It's probably another 1,000 ETFs overnight, uh, because if you're a, a fund manager and you're managing a strategy, why wouldn't you consider adding an ETF share class to help distribute to a whole new, whole new asset class, in addition to the fact that, yes, it provides a liquidity outlet for your fund, it provides immediate track record for an ETF, it provides size and scale for an ETF, it reduces your total cost 
for both you and your end investor, which is so, so important for end investors, right? If they can keep their costs low, puts more money back in their pocket, it's win, win, win all the way around it and also helps tax efficiencies of the fund. So it might slow, if that happens, it might slow down conversions. I don't think it can completely ends conversion conversions, but I do think it, it, the growth rate to the ETF industry goes up dramatically if, if that filing is approved. I completely agree. I just think this would be so attractive to um, larger asset managers who have a large amount of mutual fund assets on 401k platforms. We, we know that you know that mutual fund structure has worked well on, on retirement plans, but this would allow them to maintain those assets and also pursue the higher growth ETF market. It, it's, it's a win-win there as well. Um, yeah, and, and anything that's great for investors, right, is great for the industry. So it, it's hard for me to imagine the regulator. Again, they'll want to dot every I, cross every T. They want to make sure every asset class is protected. They want to know that each individual shareholder is protected. They're, they're, if, we wanna, you know, if anyone out there is listening, they want to get deeper into the weeds, I'm happy to do so. But the reality is uh, Vanguard's been operating that model for a very long time now, very successfully. It's happening globally. There's ways to, to now, you know, the technology at the custody banks and the administrator platforms is all highly customized and specialized. They can track individual share class costs and expenses and attribute them the right way. And historically, that was the concern of the SEC. So uh, I'm a big believer that, that those concerns are surmountable, and I'm, I'm super excited about what this could mean for the industry. Douglas, while we're on the uh, topic of the SEC, and, and I'll say please try not to reach through the uh, phone line and strangle me here, but I think you know I have to at least try asking you about spot Bitcoin ETFs because uh, NYSE ARCA did file a proposed rule change to list and trade shares of Bitwise's spot Bitcoin ETF. Of course, uh, NYSE would also be the listing partner for Grayscale Spot Bitcoin ETF if and when they're able to uh, uplist the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC. And I, I look, I, I know there's only so much you can uh, discuss here, but the big topic has been around these potential surveillance sharing agreements with Coinbase. Are you able to offer any thoughts or, or any comments regarding this uh, situation? Yeah, let me try and do what I can to thread the needle, right? We don't, we don't comment on, on public filings. We never have, and, and it's probably in bad taste to even attempt to do so. It's also almost impossible to ever predict the regulator, and, and you know, we're not going to do that on this call. What I think listeners should be aware of is, that, is a couple of things. One is, here at the New York Stock Exchange, we, if you look at almost every first thing in ETFs, whether it was the first ETF that ever launched, the first active fund, the first fixed income, commodity, bond, gold, right? You, every first has happened at the New York Stock Exchange. So how does that happen? It's not coincidence. It's because we're always working on new and novel structures. We're always working to push the industry forward. It's obvious that asset managers and investors are looking for the ability to have a protected RIC structure, right, a, a registered investment fund structure that could potentially hold spot Bitcoin. And, and we know that because look at how much money has gone into GBTC. Look at how much money and, and time and attention tracks these things. What, so I can't public on, on any, you know, on, uh, comment on the, on the filings. But what's really important that people understand is surveillance sharing agreements 
are big and real, and they are not, they're not a basic term sheet document. It's not a, hey, we'll share this info, and you'll share back, and then that covers it. They're, you know, for those that are super interested, they could reach out to me. I'll point them. There's publicly they can learn about what's these surveillance sharing agreements. The SEC has published uh, comments publicly over time about how it works. But ultimately what's happening is two regulatory authorities at the exchange level and then at a marketplace level are are basically combining together to say, hey, we're going to work with one another, we're going to share enough information, and we're going to track, we're going to oversee, and we're going to be responsible for effectively the trading at my own exchange, and I'm willing to share that with the regulators. Now, again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not trying to, to do anything other than transcribe down to layman's terms, but what, it, what the SEC has said time and time again in every disapproval proceeding for every spot uh, Bitcoin or, or any other cryptocurrency filing, time and time again they have said the underlying marketplaces are not regulated marketplaces, and the SEC wants to make sure that if uh, we're going to, to put this type of, of asset class, if you will, into an ETF that is regulated, they need to know that they can, they can follow all the rules and, and processes and procedures that we follow for every other type of ETF that we build. And that's to the protection of all of us. And so ultimately, it's going to, to be up to the SEC to say, is a surveillance sharing agreement enough? And is that enough of a change that they wanted to see, as a, you know, again, with, with some of the disapproval proceedings? Very high level. I'm trying to answer the best I can, Nate. But if there's someone out there listening, they want to learn more, they can please reach out to me or my team, and we'll go a little deeper. No, that's fantastic insight. I appreciate the uh, the candidness there. And uh, everything you said makes sense to me. I think ultimately, whether or not the SEC will get comfortable with that Coinbase, uh, Coinbase SSA, clearly that's a, a linchpin there, along with the outcome of the Grayscale lawsuit. Um, okay, look, another topic as it pertains to listing and trading ETF shares has to do with uh, NYSE listing some ETFs on the floor there, right? They, they move from solely uh, electronic trading to the actual exchange floor. And I visited with your colleague, Mo Sparks, back at the beginning of the year, and, and we briefly touched on this. But I'd love to take a moment and just get an update on, on how everything's been going here. Perhaps you can offer a few high-level data points. I, I'm just curious how this initiative has been going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let me take a step back for our audience. The majority of all ETFs in the United States are listed on uh, one of three locations. As you mentioned, 75% of the assets are listed at the New York Stock Exchange. That's on our ARCA platform. It's electronic. Uh, and then the, the rest of the, of the ETFs that are out there are split across NASDAQ and CBOE. Those are both electronic markets. So effectively, 90-plus percent of the industry has, is on electronic markets. Now, electronic markets, for us laymen, it's computers talking to computers. We do the best we can with humans behind those computers. But at the end of the day, it's not a human. And I guess we could debate AI, but, but computers can only do so much. One of the things that, in my mind, again, I'm, as you mentioned, I've been at the ETF game for quite some time. I launched my first ETF in 2001. When ETFs started, that's not how they started. They started on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, and there were humans. There were specialists. It was a specialist model. And there are a lot of key benefits that come with a human element. Again, we won't have time to go deep. Always happy to do more of this one-on-one. -on -one. But at the end of the day, one of the benefits of the, of the human is that at times of need, 
the opening auction, the closing auction, massive liquidity events, a human can step in and intervene unlike the way a computer program can. And what we've seen time and time again with ETFs is, you know, if you look at almost every ETF issuer's website, you're going to see a, a tips and best practices trading document. And in that document, it's going to say, oh, avoid the open, avoid the close. Those are times when you tend to see less liquidity. Well, that doesn't work for everyone. What if you're an advisor on, uh, and, and you want to go about your business all day, and then at the end of the day, you're going to allocate your investment model, and you're, more and more advisors are choosing ETFs. Do you, do you want, typically you want the same price for all of your clients. You want to just allocate your model. You want the closing auction or you want the opening auction. You want to hit a particular price. Well, that, th- those two ideas are, are butting up against each other and have continued over the last 30 years as we've gone all electronic. The New York Stock Exchange floor is unlike every other model out there. You're combining the best-in-class electronic technology with humans. We still have people. You see them on TV. And they're the ones that are managing that opening auction. They're managing the closing auction. They're managing intraday liquidity with a real person that can do that. And so what I'm trying to do, what my team's been trying to do for years, it took us a while. We had to build the technology. We had to get SEC approval. But now ETF issuers have the ability to list ETFs directly on the floor with a person. And guess what? We can measure the impact. For ETFs that have gone to the floor versus when they were trading in the electronic markets, on average, their spreads have been cut in more than half. Mm. So the amount of money it costs you and me as investors to buy and sell that ETF is cut by more and more than half. Uh, the amount of size, the liquidity that's showing real-time on your screen, bid and offer, is up by over 60%. And guess what? We can measure what we call auction slippage. We can see how much does the price move from its fair value versus the closing auction and the opening auction. And those numbers are down dramatically, like double and sometimes uh, close to 100%. Uh, difference in movement. And, and again, any of this data, we, we, we do broadcast it, we put it out, but, but you're welcome to reach out to me. I can get you your, your exact data. Uh, we have six ETFs that have moved to the floor as of today. Uh, really exciting is later this week, we will have uh, an ETF launch for the first time brand new directly on the floor. They'll have an IPO on the floor. And we've got a pretty strong pipeline of more and more ETFs coming to the floor. Again, all to solve that sort of liquidity issue that has come up in ETFs. We're solving that here at the New York Stock Exchange. And it's, it's a little of bring back the old, but do it in a new way, in a way that solves problems for everyone and it saves investors money. It makes problems go away. And we love that at the New York Stock Exchange. Really interesting. So you are seeing a lot more uh, interest or inquiries around this? From it, we are, yeah. Okay. yeah, the pipeline's actually quite strong. So, you know, as the data comes out each time an, an ETF goes to the floor, we can, we can measure it. We can say, how did it do versus uh, the electronic markets? And like I said, the, the data's been phenomenal. And so more, as that sort of circulates, more and more ETF issuers are saying, hey, uh, l- let me learn more. I want to I come solve that problem for my advisors. I want to co- co- solve that problem for my issuers. And by the way, if you're an advisor listening in and you're saying, yeah, that is a problem. I want to be able to trade the auctions. I want to single print and i don't want to worry about liquidity reach out to your to your asset manager when when the salesperson comes in your office and talks about your etfs ask them well is it listed on the floor of the new york stock exchange i want to trade the auctions and see what they say all right douglas only a few minutes left let's do this Uh, i want to go rapid fire with just a few questions here and then we'll close with a little bit of discussion around etf education so on on these rapid fire questions think maybe 30 second responses uh, on each 
Um, okay, so first, I always like to say you do have a front row seat to everything going on in the ETF space. And so I, I'm just curious, besides active ETFs and ETF share classes, Bitcoin ETFs, the, the topics we've already covered today, what's an area within ETFs you're hearing the most about right now, like in conversations you're having with issuers? Yep. So the, the easy answer is fixed income. It's still a, a, a giant green you know, field. There's a lot of areas of fixed income that have not yet been captured in ETFs. And so we're working with a lot of different issuers to start to capture as many of those ETFs as possible. And the second is the more esoteric places that people want to be able to be invested in, like the energy markets, like uh, the, you know, the, the underlying commodities and products that go into the EV market. So macro trends that we know are playing out over 20, 30 years. People want to be able to put put that into an ETF wrapper. All right. Next question I have. I know you love all of your uh, children equally, but is there a new ETF that's listed on the NYSE this year that you're particularly proud of or even just personally you find very intriguing? So I'm going to give you a, a couple. It is right. I mean, we're launching a, a couple hundred ETFs a year. Everything's new, unique, and innovative, but a few of the things going on. One, if you're not familiar with Yield Max, you have to look that up. They're basically taking single names like a Netflix and putting an option strategy right on top of it. So you're getting like an earned income yield on top of your stock holding. So Yield Max, uh, their lineup is really unique and innovative. The other one is CHRG Charge. They, they're basically investing directly in the underlying commodities like lithium, cobalt, nickel, all the things that go into EV. Instead of just buying like the companies, you're actually buying the commodities. It's the only ETF out there that's doing it, CHRG. And the other one is uh, AMPD. It's, it's the first ETF to actually invest in uh, energy and energy uh, energy futures, so you're basically able to use an ETF to invest in the electricity market. So, uh, again, there's there's way more. Go to ETFcentral.com. We put a lot of exposés out on all of our ETFs, but just off the top of my head, those are all brand new, doing something that's never been done before. And here we are, 30 years into the ETF industry, breaking new ground. All right, last rapid-fire question, and I know I've asked you this before. Just give us one big ETF prediction for the next five or, or ten years. This can be on anything you like pertaining to the industry. So I actually think that if that for the next five to ten years, every investor who is not holding an ETF actually will. Um, we're doing everything we can to educate. You know, you started there. We're, we're ambassadors here at the New York Stock Exchange. If you're not familiar with ETF Central, we've invested heavily with that. We've created, as, as I hope you've mentioned, the partnership we now have together with the ETF Institute. Uh, it really brings up everything uh, from our perspective about education. So we're trying to educate as much as possible so that every investor out there will learn about ETFs. They'll find the ETF that works right for them, and they'll add it to their portfolio. So I believe every investor will own at least one ETF. You mentioned uh, ETF education. I think most listeners are aware of the ETF Institute, which I uh, launched a couple of years ago. This is professional education and certification around ETFs. You can find this at CETF.org. But as you mentioned, Douglas, back in April, the ETF Institute partnered with ETF Central. And and ETF Central, that's a collaboration between Track Insight and the New York Stock Exchange. But before I let you go, you know, I probably don't talk about this enough on the the podcast, but since you're here this week, maybe I'll let you tout what we're doing here, which I'm very proud of. Do you want to just offer a few comments around that? Yeah, maybe I'll start with the birth of ETF Central. So that all stemmed from the idea that we said we, we were asking investment advisors, how are you finding out about ETFs? 
And the answers were not great. I won't get into the answers. But what we decided was, what if we built a free screener that was intuitive? So you didn't have to know the name or the ticker. All you did know was the idea. So you could type in lithium. It'll tell you all the ETFs that invest in the lithium markets. Or I could type in energy or water or yield, right? Like, I know my theme. Show me every ETF listed in the U.S. So, so the whole idea for ETFcentral.com was build an intuitive screener for investors and advisors to go that, that no one's marketing to them. It's, it's free and it's available with all the data. And then we'll build from there. And then when we started to really grow and get onto the education kick and we started conversations with the ETF Institute, we said, boy, what about this? Investors, advisors, anyone who wants to enhance their education and really dig deep, really understand the ETF market, what better way than to get certified with the CETF designation? It's a FINRA designation. By the way, I got it a few months ago. My entire team here now at the New York Stock Exchange are all CETF certified. Uh, we're big believers in this. We're investing heavily. We're going to put a lot of time and energy over the next few years. We want to build that out and really make it something special. So my belief is, you know, again, predicting three, five years out, this is the new SEMA. This is the new education piece that every investment advisor, anyone who's coming into our industry, they're going to want to have this designation to prove that they know the ETF industry in and out. Well, Douglas, we'll have to leave it there. Such a fun conversation this week. I think you and I could could talk for an hour or two. Maybe next time we'll have to uh, have you on for the full hour podcast. But always enjoy connecting. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me today. It's been great. That was Douglas Jonas, head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange. The future is here. Introducing BNY Mellon Investment Management thematic ETFs, built to deliver differentiated risk-adjusted returns through areas of societal growth and progress, and powered by our multidimensional research experts' 20-plus years of thematic investing experience. ETFs trade like stocks are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. To learn more, visit im.bnymellon.com today for important disclosures and prospectuses. I'm now joined by David Schulhoff, founder and CEO of MUSQ, who last month launched the MUSQ Global Music Industry ETF. The ticker symbol is appropriately MUSQ, and David is now on the line with me from New York. David, congratulations on the uh, launch, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, Nate. Thanks a lot for having me on your show today. All right. First, I would love to hear more about your uh, background. I was just looking at your bio, and I see you were president of music publishing at uh, Live One. You were president of music at AGC Film Studios. You were president of music at I Am Global Film Studios, among several other uh, interesting roles and, and board seats. Just tell us a little bit more about your uh, background within the music industry. Yes, I've been in the music industry, Nate, for the last 25 years. I start, My first job was working for a guy named Jimmy Iovine, who was the founder of Interscope Records and co-founded uh, Beats with Dr. Dre, which he sold to Apple for $3 billion. Um, after working for Jimmy, I went off and uh, I became a lawyer, and my first real job was working over at Disney for seven years. I was the head music attorney overseeing music for Miramax and Dimension Films. I left and ran, uh, started my first private equity company called Evergreen, uh, which raised money from Lehman Brothers, and we pursued a global acquisition strategy of music publishing catalogs. I bought 26 of them everything from Bill Monroe to Death Row. I sold that portfolio uh, in 2010 to KKR. That company became BMG Rights Management. 
I was the president of music at two film studios. I produced some music documentaries. I produced Clive Davis's uh, documentary, The Soundtrack of Our Lives, which I sold to Apple, which is now a number one music doc on Netflix. And then over the last four years, I was the president of music publishing at Live One, a public company which owns Slacker Radio, uh, which powers all the music in every Tesla vehicle that you buy. Uh, we own Podcast One as well. And then uh, and over the last 20 years or so, I've also you know, was a sponsor and board member on two SPAC acquisitions. So really, music has really been the thread of my entire career for the last 25 years as an investor, owner, uh, and entrepreneur in the space. Yeah, as you went through that, I'm just thinking, I bet you have some uh, excellent stories to tell. You're probably a wonderful person to grab a cocktail with. <laughs> and here's you know, I've been very lucky in my career to spend a lot of time with artists, a lot of time with great writers, uh, spent my career surrounding myself with very talented people, so I've been very fortunate. All right, so let's do this. Let's talk about the ETF itself, and then we can come back to, to why you launched this, and we'll obviously get into the investment case. But just take us through the ETF. What, what, what exactly does this hold? Okay, so the MUSQ Global Music Industry ETF tracks the performance of companies on the MUSQ Global Music Industry Index. Uh, the index today is currently comprised of 47 companies, across five major categories. You have streaming, you have content, you have live music and ticketing, you have music equipment and technology, and you have satellite and radio. 45% of the index are domestic companies, 55% of the index are foreign companies. The way music companies are eligible to be on the index, they must derive greater than 50% of their revenues from music, or they have to be a top five player or control greater than 10% of the global market share in one of those five categories I mentioned. No company can have a market cap less than $100 million, and they must have at least $500,000 a day of average daily liquidity. Obviously, the companies go up from there in size, and no single company can carry a market weight of greater than 7% on the index. All the companies are calculated by market weight. The index gets calculated and rebalanced quarterly. Okay, so let me ask you this, and, and I want to get into some of the specific segments you mentioned uh, that, that are held within this ETF, but I was looking at the holdings, and I saw the top three stocks in your ETF are currently Alphabet, Apple, and Amazon, each around a 7% weighting or, or so. And obviously, all of those companies are top holdings in the S&P 500 as well, and I, I think that might surprise a few people who initially look at, at the holdings in this ETF. Do you want to explain the rationale there? Yeah, of course. Look, I'd be remiss as an investor to, to omit Alphabet, Apple, and Amazon uh, from the index. They're top five players in the industry. Uh, they each have more than 10% of the global market share in one of those top five categories. Um, Apple has uh, 82 million paid subscribers in their music service. Amazon has 55 million paid subscribers in their music service. YouTube has 50 million paid subscribers in their music service. So, uh, obviously, they're not as big as Spotify, which has 182 million paid subscribers. But nonetheless, they're all important players. I thought carefully as I designed the index, and the way that we've calibrated for that is that no single company can actually be more than 7% on the index. Okay, so let's do this. Let's go through some of those those segments that you mentioned earlier. And really, I think this gets into the overall investment thesis behind the ETF. And from my perspective, I think the obvious place to start is on paid streaming, right? That represents the biggest portion of the industry's revenue and earnings. Uh, talk about the potential upside in, in that space moving forward. Look, the, 
global streaming market was, was estimated was around $31 billion in 2022. It's expected to reach $130 billion by 2033, okay, in the next 10 years, growing at a compound annual growth rate of 13.8% over the next 10 years. Um, these companies are also just scratching the surface on price hikes. In the last 15 years, none of these companies, some of them weren't even around, uh, none of them raised their prices. They just raised their prices for the first time by 10%. When you think about it, it is the most under-monetized uh, media asset. J.P. Morgan called streaming services the most under-monetized media asset in the history of the media business. Think about it. For $11 a month, you have access to 150 million songs. So it's also streaming is also driving 67% of the of the global recorded music business. So the TAM is simply huge. Uh, every individual around the world who has a mobile phone is a potential music owner. So we think all these services, it's just the beginning, and we think that the TAM is, is so big that, uh, that these services are, are really forecasting a lot of growth ahead. In this uh, category, I was looking at your website, and I have to convey two stats that just jumped off the screen uh, at me to listeners here. So subscription-based music streaming platforms emerged in uh, what Spotify launched in 2008, became available in the U.S. in 2011, and really that was an answer to music piracy. And I, the stat that I have that just was alarming to me, in 2008, 95% of all music that was downloaded was downloaded illegally per uh, IFPI estimates. That, that's just shocking. But now you look... Uh, streaming revenue as a percentage of the U.S. music industry uh, overall revenue it has increased from 7% to 83%. That was from 2010 to, to 2020. Just two amazing stats, and you can see the evolution here. I think, you know, at least people my age will think back to the old days with Napster and how all this music was just floating around illegally online, easy to get. So you can see this business model evolve here. Um, another area I wanted to ask you about is live music events. And it's funny, David, my oldest daughter recently went to the uh, Taylor Swift concert here in Kansas City. And I, I was thinking, you know, we've all heard the jokes about how Taylor Swift is propping up the economy this year. Yeah. I'll tell you, I certainly did my part in getting her to that event. But in all seriousness, how big of a deal is live music to the uh, industry right now? Well, look, just to give you a context in numbers, okay, 2019 before, you know, COVID hit, the industry was at $22.7 billion. It dropped to $3.9 billion in 2020. Um, in 2023, the industry is around $34 billion this year, so it grew 10 times, and it's forecasting to grow another $10 billion over the next three years. So the, the numbers are simply staggering. Obviously, Taylor Swift, she's just one of a number of, you know, artists today who are, you know, contributing to the, you know, to the, to, to the touring business. You obviously have Harry Styles, you have Beyonce, you have Springsteen, you have Elton John, his Yellow Brick Road Tour, Ed Sheeran, Coldplay, Daddy Yankee, Bad Bunny. All of these acts are, uh, are really contributing uh, massive numbers. I think, you know, Live Nation just reported their numbers uh, for the quarter at $5.63 billion. It was up 27% from the last year. Concerts were at $5 billion, up 
29% year-over-year. Ticketing was up 23% year-over-year at 709 million. Sponsorship was up 15% to 302 million. It is just, you know, people want to see live events. They, they, they yearn for it. There's nothing like it. And, uh, and these numbers just continue to grow as I think Live Nation is forecasting twice as many artists on tour for the next 12 months. So obviously people love live music. And yes, to your point about the economy, yeah, I think Taylor Swift is doing $1.3 billion in sales this year. And I think she contributed another $4 billion to the economy this year alone. It's unbelievable. What about uh, concerts and virtual reality? Was that really more of a pandemic era phenomenon, or do you think that'll have legs moving forward? No, I think, look, AI and virtual concerts are all really interesting things that are happening in the metaverse today. Um, I think it shows kind of the power of music. People are able to create music from their home. They're able to live stream from wherever they are. I think fans are looking for different kinds of experiences. Uh, wherever these artists are in the world. Uh, so I think, you know, it just shows that with the tools available to artists today, they could l- literally, with a, you know, with a MIDI pack, they could create their own live stream concert. They could sell tickets on their own. They could engage their fans on their own. They could be their own venues. They could create their own shows wherever they are. So that's the beauty of what's going on today in the live music business. Every artist has an audience. Every artist can communicate with that audience. Every artist can create their own show. Uh, It can obviously be big in partnership with a massive company like Live Nation or with Sphere or Madison Square Garden or CTS Eventum, and all these companies are, are on our index. Or they could do things, you know, on their own, and they could partner with, you know, smaller independent uh, virtual companies that are, and there's tons of them out there that enable these fans to connect directly with their audience to do live shows. David, just a few minutes left here. Another area I wanted to ask you about, which really piqued my interest, uh, is music catalogs and catalog sales and how you gain exposure to those within the ETF. Do you want to explain that just high level? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, I've been in the music publishing space for a long time, been buying publishing catalogs. The nice thing about our index. Uh, you have access to the smaller royalty trusts like Hypnosis, like Roundhill, like Reservoir. You also have access to Universal Music Publishing, Warner Music Publishing, Sony Music Publishing, and all the K-pop companies. People don't realize like a company like Hive is controlling a big part of our artist and publishing business today. They bought uh, quality control. They own. They manage their rights to. Uh, Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber. So you have all these K-pop companies. So our index provides tons of exposure to music publishing. Uh, you know, they, these, these companies really are at the forefront of all the different uh, assets that they're acquiring out there. So by buying shares in the fund, you get exposure to music publishing. Yeah, and just to give listeners a good example, I mentioned at the top I'm a a huge uh, 90s alternative music fan, but I saw, uh, you noted the Red Hot Chili Peppers sold all of their pre-2020 material to hypnosis for around $150 million, just to give people an idea. Um, David, before I let you go, I saw a competing ETF launch recently, the Cloudy Tune ETF, ticker Tune. There was also a uh, K-pop ETF that launched last year. Again, just high level, how would you compare and contrast MUSQ with those ETFs? Yeah, look, MUSQ is really the, the first and the only pure play music uh, ETF out there. Cloudy Tune, it's not really a music ETF. I think 
six out of their 50 holdings have nothing to do with music, from Adobe to uh, Naspers to Cloudfair to Trade Desk. I, I can't really speak to what their strategy is, but they're not a music ETF. They only have two or three holdings in music of their 50 companies. Uh, K-pop, uh, we, we actually hold a number of those K-pop companies, but they're not the only companies in our index. So obviously, we think highly of SM Entertainment, Hybe, JYP. Those companies are all on the K-pop uh, in, in, are on the K-pop fund. We have, I think, seven or eight K-pop companies. So we don't exclusively limit ourselves to K-pop companies. We certainly give exposure. Uh, to K-pop companies on our index. So that's a pure play K-pop company. We're a fully diversified global music industry ETF, and K-pop is a small part of what we do. Well, David, again, congratulations on the uh, launch. Certainly wish you the best of luck. Really interesting uh, segment of the market. Thank you for joining me this week. Great. Thanks so much, Nate. Take care. Bye-bye. That was David Schulhoff, founder and CEO of MUSQ. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Motley Fool Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Motley Fool Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by Bloomberg's Nick Gendron, who's Global Head of Fixed Income Product Management there. He's going to go in-depth on innovation and fixed income indices. And I should note, Bloomberg is about to hit the 50th anniversary of offering fixed income indices. So it should be interesting. And then Neos Investments' Garrett Paoella will spotlight their options-based income ETFs, which now have nearly $350 million in assets. Until then, have a great week, everyone.